Hi, I'm Jake Morkham. I'm Ellen Leavitter. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. So I went down. There's a really good sushi place just down from the station here. Mm, yeah. Um, I go there whenever I'm feeling peckish. I have a VIP card. I'm pretty sure you get there every day. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, there's seaweed that kind of goes around the best sushi. Yeah. You know, that's algae. Sushi is algae? It's not just like... I thought it was a plant. Well, algae can be a plant, right? It, Whoa. It, it, it's a type of... It's a type of plant, essentially. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was, in fact, algae. And we've done algae stories before. We have. Okay, so we've talked about the algae buildings. Yeah. Can the algae buildings make the sushi seaweed? <laughs> well, I've no, I don't live in one, and I know it was they're developing a prototype here in Sydney. But there was, yeah, you're right, consumable algae in the algae building. But algae has a plethora of... Of uses, it can actually be used as a sort of fuel. Can be used in pharmaceuticals to make plastic. Although I don't know how sustainable that would be yeah. using a natural resource <laughs> to make plastic. But coming up a little later on, you're actually going to hear from a group of accountants working with algae. A- accountants working with algae. Aren't scientists normally the ones who work with algae? They're looking at the feasibility of an algae industry here in Australia. But coming up first. If you've ever ventured along the roads in New South Wales, you might know of a rivalry that's going on. Motorist versus cyclist. Okay, so do you drive? Yes, I do. What do you think about cyclists? Let's, let's be honest. So I feel sometimes that they can do things that you're like, what are you doing on the roads? I get like really severe road rage, to be honest. So <laughs> yeah. if I'm stuck behind one, I'll be like really aggressive. Mm. I actually do. Like I get so angry. I'm personally in favour of cyclists. I drive half the week and I ride half the week. So I kind of know that I feel the danger of sometimes being on the road and cars being very close to me. I have a very low tolerance to certain cyclists. I think they cop a bit of a bad rap, the whole Lycra thing. Is it is it just the Lycra that pisses you off about cyclists? No, it's the, it's the road behaviour. But I think it's it's a reactionary thing, like because they, they have to assert their dominance on the road because people in Sydney are so shit dealing with cyclists on the road. So, you know, it's kind of a catch-22. I mean, I can sort of see the frustration when you sit on a bus and the bus is sort of stuck behind a cyclist. But, but seriously, the people that really get wound up about them, I mean, seriously, there are, there are so many bigger things to be, be upset about. So people cycle for a reason. It's a cost saver. Maybe it means you don't have to pay as much for public transport. It's good for your health. One person told me while I was actually putting this story together that it adds 10 years to your life. It's also better for the environment, right? One cyclist is one less person driving a car. But that's the thing. When you're cycling on the road, you're sharing it with cars, trucks, buses, taxis. So you have to be watching out for yourself. I've been hit by cars three times now. um, And the latest one kind of involved me breaking my toe. It was on Oxford Street. They kind of clipped the end of my tyre. I slipped over, went into a gutter, broke my toe. Didn't realise though and kept riding. 
This is Jack. He's an avid cyclist and lives in Enmore, a suburb in inner West Sydney. So he's very familiar with the local roads. Another time I was coming up to an intersection and I think a car just thought they had enough time to turn um, and they turned straight into me and then I kind of ended up on their bonnet. But this poor girl was like heading to a funeral. That's why she was in such oh a rush. And I was like, could have killed someone else. <laughs> but yeah, she, um, she was totally distraught. And I think one of the good things when you get hit by a car is that obviously everyone is, you know, runs to your side and tries to help you make sure you're okay, make sure the bike is okay. And usually when you do end up in the middle of the road, all of the cars will stop. Mm. And I don't think that they really get angry at you then because they're, they're more worried that you might be injured. Well, I guess then they might be in the wrong, yeah. right? Yeah, So exactly. they don't want to be angry at you. Yeah. I've had the opposite though as well. The car's driven off and um, so maybe they just decided to get the hell out of there <laughs> in case they killed me. Um, but they definitely saw me fall over. So yeah, I don't know. I think if you, I just try to keep a happy disposition about it. Because you're from Victoria mm. initially. I'm assuming you rode your bike in Melbourne. Yeah. How does Sydney compare with Melbourne? I mean, it's uncomparable. Melbourne is above and beyond what Sydney is for cyclists on the road. Um, there's bike lanes pretty much on m- most major streets. Although, to be fair, Melbourne was a city that was designed. Sydney just kind of happened and exploded. So the roads couldn't really take into account the need for cyclists. I think, though, Melbourne has done a lot more in terms of making it safer for cyclists, putting in bike lanes um, more often in most uh, developing areas. In Sydney, we're seeing, especially in the inner city, the bike lanes are actually being taken away. And so cyclists have nowhere else to go except the footpath, and then that makes pedestrians angry, which is fair enough because it's actually illegal to ride on the footpath. Uh, And I think... Yeah, if you're comparing Melbourne to Sydney, Melbourne is a much safer city and I think for that reason as well, much more sustainable um, and also pedestrian friendly too. So what can Sydney actually take from Melbourne's roads? Like, what do they need to look like to make life easier for cyclists? Cool, yeah, my name's Cameron Harrison. I guess I'm a director and co-owner and head mechanic of The Rolling Fix. The Rolling Fix is literally a bike mechanic service on wheels. Every day, Cameron rides around Sydney fixing or doing maintenance on people's bikes, uh, mostly at their workplaces and that sort of thing. Sydney's roads, uh, as a road themselves, are pretty bad. They're pretty hard on bicycles. There's a lot of potholes, a lot of cracks in the road. Um, They're in pretty dire straits, especially some of the main thoroughfares like Cleveland Street. There are patches which are beautiful now that have been resealed, but a few of them are really bad. But roads aside... Uh, you definitely have people come past and, you know, and most of the time they're just ill-educated on the, on the rules of the road, you know, and they say things like, oh, you have to be on the footpath or you, ha- you can't ride two abreast. What does that mean, two abreast in the lane? It means two cyclists side by side. And I suppose the one most frustrating thing that happened was probably six or seven months ago, riding on the northern beaches and we were riding two abreast and there was a group of four or five of us and there was a couple of young kids in the back of a car that yelled out saying, oh, you should get off the road, like you have to be single file. And 
we got stuck at the traffic lights right next to him. I said, <laughs> I said, oh well, that's actually not the rule. You're you're allowed to ride two abreast. It's legal. And they looked at us very confused, and then turned to their mum. And their mum looked at them, who had obviously encouraged them to yell at us through the window, and said, "Is that true?" And she was like, "I don't know." But it's not just your standard motorist who doesn't know the road rules either. I have been pulled up by, well, I was riding in a group and we were pulled up by the highway patrollers and the cops didn't know the road rules either. This is Ingrid Ralph. Ingrid is from the Australian Cyclists Party and stood for Senate seat in the last federal election. And there have been multiple people that I know who have been pulled up by the cops have been told that they're going to be booked, but it never happens because what they're being booked for is actually incorrect. What was it that you were being booked for? We were being told that we had to ride on the shoulder. This was going up towards Brooklyn because one of the rides that we do is heading north. And on the shoulder of the roads heading north on the Pacific Highway, there are these blue signs which indicate that it's a bicycle route. But he is telling us that it's actually a bike lane and we're required to cycle in it. But because we're in a large group, we were riding two abreast on the road and not in the shoulder. Right. And that's what he, he was telling us we were doing illegally. And so what did, you, what did you as a group say back to him? Oh, I basically told him what the road rules were. Telling a highway patroller the road rules. <laughs> <laughs> he was kind of a bit taken aback. But he then did back down and let us go. And, I mean, we've done that ride many times before and we haven't been pulled up by the cops since. The Australian Cyclists' Party also advocate for improved infrastructure, things like including a national standard for cycling facilities, proper signage, bike lane design criteria and road regulations. Another area is a national inquiry into the mandatory bicycle helmet legislation. Now, Ingrid doesn't mind wearing a helmet when she rides, but she doesn't believe it'll solve all of cyclists' problems. I personally would not ride without a helmet, but then, as I said, I ride on the roads. If you have separate cycling infrastructure, there should be no reason why people are required to wear helmets. I mean, if you look at other countries where cycling is massive, such as in Amsterdam and Copenhagen... They don't wear helmets. I mean, you see pictures of Princess Mary in Denmark riding her kids to school. No helmets. She's wearing ordinary street clothes. It's a normal, everyday thing to do, to ride your bike with your kids to take them to school. If the cycling infrastructure is there, then the helmets are not necessary. And if you look at the number of accidents that happen in places like Amsterdam and Copenhagen, the numbers of accidents are significantly less per capita of what we have over here in Sydney. The thing is, people with cars are still going to drive them. I drive because it's convenient and I'm also not the strongest rider. But how can we actually make a change in Sydney if we put the infrastructure in place? How can we actually get more people to switch to the two-wheeler? Lifestyle-related illness is the biggest 
strain on our health system. So if they want to have sustainable health budgets into the future, they need to get more people active. And the easiest way of doing that is to create an environment, invest in an environment that makes it safe and easy for people to ride. This is Fiona Campbell from the City of Sydney, and she's talking about getting state and federal governments to jump on the cycling bandwagon. Also, the federal government is interested in cities working well for businesses and import and export and you know, businesses wanting to, to set up headquarters. For that to happen, you need to have efficient movement because the businesses don't want to be here if their staff are all going to be stuck in traffic. So creating cities where it's easy to get around and where walking and cycling really complement the public transport is important for economic well-being of, of the country. So those governments are looking back and going, oh, councils can do bike stuff and we, won't, we don't have to get involved, but actually they're the ones that are the main beneficiaries. So seeing them actually help and really come to the party with investment would make a lot of sense for them if they thought about it. So you're a cyclist. Going back into that story, how do you feel about the whole thing of it being mandatory for you to wear a helmet? I think uh, if I'm riding, say, my road bike on the road where I can get up to pretty considerable speeds, I think it's important to wear a helmet because if I was coming off my bike at like 50 kilometres an hour, a helmet's going to... It's going to save you. It's going to save my life, basically. But if you go up to the shops, like a couple hundred metres up... And I was on like a fixie, like a really one gear bike or whatever. Then no, I don't think you need a helmet. But could you be done in that time? Like, like if someone Look, on highway Murphy's patrol, law, it probably <laughs> would happen, right? Yeah. So just wear it anyway, Ellen. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Think Sustainability on Two SCR one hundred seven point three. So our minds have been blown by the fact that when we eat sushi, we're eating algae. Yeah. I'm, I feel like that's gross. <laughs> no, but I'm still going to continue to eat sushi. Have, I think our minds have just been blown by the sheer amount of stuff that algae can do. Yeah. Algae can be used in pharmaceuticals. It can be used as a biofuel, It's like the new, biodiesel. It's like a new superfood, super, super plant. It's meant to be a new super industry. Um, and these guys, Paul, Cheryl, and William, are working on something at UTS, the University of Technology Sydney, called the Algae Project. So they're not just looking at what it can do. They're actually trying to get this up and running as an industry so that we can utilise it to its best potential. Um, but they're doing it from an accounting side. They're figuring out the finances. Algae research has been around for ages. Like People have been, I mean, every time you eat sushi there's uh, some sort of like algae that's around the outside of the uh, the sushi and so that's what you call um i think they call it macro algae which is usually grown in the ocean and there's about eighty thousand hectares of ocean farming <laughs> for that sort of sort of algae uh, but the one that we're interested in is micro algae and so micro algae is the sort of thing that you, you see in your um fish tank that you're having right. to clean out and the thing about micro algae is it grows really fast so if you think about a mechanism that's going to produce biomass, if you have a hectare and you have that hectare growing, I don't know, cotton or trees or grass or something, and then you have that hectare growing algae, algae is going to have a much higher biomass production rate. When you say biomass, what actually do, what does biomass actually mean? Oh, the actual physical, the tangible thing itself. So a, a tree trunk is biomass. Right. Like a leaf is biomass. Biomass is the actual tangible thing. So algae just grows really, really fast. And so it's basically converting, I guess, sunlight 
and uh, it's taking in some carbon dioxide or nitrogen and some phosphorus and it's taking that in and it's growing as an organism and so it's very efficient at taking carbon dioxide and taking sunlight and growing itself and so this is one of the reasons why microalgae is seen as one of the super uh, industries of the future and there's I think there's more than 50 research centres around the world that are focusing on doing things with microalgae and the thing is that I think there's about there's over 40,000 some estimates I think I've seen 80,000 different or possibly different varieties of microalgae right so there's a huge research potential there you know you can grow algae to um, to turn it to biofuel so you want a high lipid content you can grow algae to produce um, different drugs and compounds so that one of them is a cancer drug that you can get out of some forms of algae and the projections are that you can produce it a lot cheaper than the current drugs right. so it's got the potential to be one of the biggest industries around exactly how do you grow it like they don't necessarily need co2 to grow it's just that they can eat it or do they need it yeah. to grow they do they they, they so do it's crucial because it. you'd mentioned a number of different things in terms of its capacity to grow within like power stations and mm. deposits mm. so ingesting this co2 to grow is that essentially how it would function it is when you're talking about retrofitting an algae farm on the back of a, say, a coal-fired power plant. It starts quite simply with just basic um, cost and revenue assumptions when we're building kind of the engine room for setting up, say, just for an example, one hectare of algae farm. But then when it starts to get to the different sources of CO2 that we're taking from, that's when the accounting starts to get really interesting because then we're sort of looking at life cycle costing methods and how to essentially allocate what CO2 is released at each stage across the value chain and thus where the environmental impact should reasonably be attributed to. Right, so essentially like the best place to situate it with the lowest cost and the less damage to the environment. Yeah, exactly, yeah. And where is that? Well, it's that's a difficult question, I think. <laughs> well, we were, so, well, we were talking about power stations mm. and putting so, one on the back of there to eat up some of the CO2 generated yeah, by a power yeah. station. And that sounds like it would be a, quite an ideal thing, but uh, essentially what happens is, is you've got, just say, a 1,000 megawatt hour power station pumping out a huge amount of CO2. There's only a certain amount of that you can actually capture, and then there's only a certain amount of that you can fix into the algae. And then as you move along, the process then from the algae getting harvested to then getting transported to be made into biodiesel you've got more inputs that might potentially offset any benefit from that co2 that you've sequestered that isn't to say that if it's not done in a specific way it couldn't be beneficial but uh that's part of what we're kind of trying to ascertain at the moment with the research you, you might think about so what we're trying to do is we're trying to build a, a set of models that link together so that our researchers and government and other people and interested stakeholders can essentially evaluate and compare different production forms. So should we get the CO2 from a coal-fired power station or should we get it from a, a, a brickworks or some other technique or from, from the atmosphere would be ideal, right? Uh, and also one of the things that we, we keep finding, <laughs> and this is particularly what Cheryl's um, uh, investigating, is the impact of what the end product is. So you might use algae to suck up a whole bunch of CO2, mm. which is fantastic, right? Yeah. But then if you go and turn that into something that you're going to burn, <laughs> right. then all you're essentially doing is your, uh, which is not necessarily a, it, it, it's still better than the status quo. So what you might be doing is you might be getting two uses for the one emission, which is good. 
but ultimately if you're taking that carbon <laughs> from uh, from out of the ground and you're, you're sticking it into the the algae and then you're releasing it into the atmosphere um, that still has an environmental burden yeah so just say if you're taking algae directly from the air there's a very low concentration of co2 there it's something like 400 parts per million how do you take algae from the air it will just naturally uh synthesize it as it right. grows uh, and so you can do that, but you're going to get a very low yield from it, maybe about two grams per meter squared per day, as opposed to injecting it directly from a CO2 concentrated source. Uh, so again, if going back to coal-fired power plants, the flue gas from a coal-fired power plant is about 10 to 15 percent CO2 on average. So it's a much stronger source of CO2, and that can increase algae production up to threefold, I think. So you're mm. more looking at, depending on the type of farm, so maybe if we're look, talking about an open raceway pond, uh, more likely closer to 20 grams per metre squared per day. So that's an order of magnitude more if you're taking it from that point source. What are these, like, if you as accountants looking at this and you're like, this has massive potential as an industry to work, but there might be hurdles, what's an ideal scenario that you would like to have in terms of production to recovery to utilisation of algae? Like, what would a proper system like that look like? That's a question for Paul, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're on the money when you're talking about um, decision-making, and this is kind of our focus. So um, uh, Cheryl's model is very much looking at trying to construct information so that you can, you know, when you identify the better configuration, you actually know that it is better. You mean in terms of a financial model? Yeah, but both financial and uh, environmental. environmental. So ideally, so one of the things that we're working on is a... A, a, a relatively it's not necessarily a new form of accounting but it's not very well uh, not very widely practiced uh, form of accounting where you essentially try and work out what is the economic value that's being constructed and also what's the environmental destruction that's being caused yeah and then you're trying to work out this point where you can create economic value without the environmental destruction so it could be the case that for example you might take some co2 from the atmosphere and then you're essentially sucking up CO2, and that's benefiting the environment. So you're, you know, that's a, a positive, you know, a plus. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, if you're going to take CO2 from limestone or or some other, you know, source uh, where it's not that that CO2 or that carbon isn't part of the carbon cycle, and if you just release that into the atmosphere, you're creating, you know, yeah. environmental destruction because you're contributing to to climate change. But maybe it could be possible that you might be able to create enough economic value to then be able to uh, pay for some other mechanism to suck the CO2 right. out of the atmosphere. But if you can't create enough <laughs> economic value to suck some CO2 out of the atmosphere, then it really doesn't make any sense from a sustainability or environmental, you know, a societal long-term point of view to invest in that te- technology in the first place. I guess because... It doesn't make any sense. I guess because if perhaps there's <laughs> a scenario where you're putting algae into, like, a deposit or, or in a lime, like, you might be getting a lot of it and you might be able to then sell that out and make a lot of money off it if it's an economically viable um, choice. But, yeah, if you're throwing crap back in, like... But, I mean, this is a key challenge. So you've got all these decision-makers and this is why the research is being done to make it a profitable enterprise. I guess the question is, if, for example, the you know the, the Australian government or the US or someone is going to invest in supporting that sort of industry, you have to ask, okay, what sort of industry do, do we want? Right. We want to have an industry that's going to produce a whole lot of jobs, but which is going to make it impossible to reach our you know greenhouse gas emission targets for the country. 
which is possible, right? If you if you don't set the industry up, you know, appropriately, or maybe we can invest public funds or you know private funds into the type of configuration which would both create economic value and not destroy the environment. And so at the moment, it's not clear. Given the research that you're doing and I guess the financial logistics of all of it, mm-hmm. are we going to be able to get to a point where we have a strong algae industry in either five or ten years' time? Well, we, we could if, you know, there is improvement in the current technology, if they find better ways of increasing the productivity or they find better ways of converting the biomass into whatever end product they wish to have and have that process environmentally friendly if they they are able to do it then but we need to get to that point like we need to have a system that works with it to really create that industry yeah Yeah. in in fact one way to look at it and this is where uh, it's interesting thinking about how the Australian economy is set up so traditionally Australian economy a lot of our high value <laughs> industries have been mining and essentially industries uh, if you think of coal mining is an example which is essentially an industry which is you know mm. causes a huge amount of environmental destruction so the question is okay as we move away from those you know very last century industries uh, into new industries algae theoretically uh, has the potential to replace some of these industries because because the biomass grows so fast it's it's really unbelievable how fast this biomass and if you can turn this biomass into food you can turn the biomass into uh, fiber so you can have clothes made of algae you could in, in principle turn it into uh, plastic so there's all these things that you can grow and so if australia was to say invest in a in industry where we had some sort of competitive advantage like with you know at the moment we have competitive advantage in mining because we we were blessed with it right so yeah. it's all this stuff stuck in the ground so we really didn't have to work very hard to get it right so in ten years time you could have algae replacing large parts of the Australian economy but it all depends upon the research and development because I mean in principle if this is why the economics is important if we do the same thing so if we take say the current state of knowledge to do with algae production and we just apply that we're not necessarily going to get a lot of economic benefit because people in the US, people in China, people in all the all the people that we trade with who we want to sell our, our goods to, right. they're doing the same thing as we're doing and, right. and they don't have to like stick it on a ship and get it over there. Um, it's also then, kind of like pitching. It's like our industry has just changed. Would you like to buy some algae? <laughs> that's right, yeah. So and this is why you have all these research centres all over the world because other countries know this has the potential to be huge. Yeah, I think mm. that's I think that's another one of the things that makes algae's future so bright is mm. just the potential for different products that can come from it. I mean, there's so many different things you can make from algae. It doesn't necessarily have to be that you're purely, you know, using an algae farm for biodiesel to try and replace coal. You can make bioceuticals, you can make feedstock, you can make um astaxanthin is one that we're always struggling <laughs> that? to pronounce. That's uh, the drug. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it's a drug, right. Uh, so yeah, so there are some yeah, there are some bio grade level products that you can produce from algae. Um I mean hundreds and hundreds of different things. And mm. I think in terms of uh, you're not going to find something else that can do as many things and can and can grow as quickly and uh you know, has that level of potential. So I think it's yeah, I think that's one of the interesting things for sure. Paul, Cheryl and William from the Algae Project at the University of Technology, Sydney. 
Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us on your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Melon Lee Beta. See you next week. Thank you.